Acts chapter 5. I remember back in the day when you would, and it wasn't even that long ago, which is interesting, but you would check into a hotel and they would ask you this really interesting question. They would say, do you need a wake-up call uh, for tomorrow? And um, I remember back in the day, I would say, yeah, because it was pre-cell phone. And now if somebody asks you that, you look at them and wonder if they're living in the same decade that you're living in. Um, But a wake-up call is an interesting thing. It's something that none of us particularly love And when you get that wake up call, like I have this beautiful, like symphonic music that comes playing out of my phone in the morning. It happened this morning, super early. And it still like jarred me when it, when it came on, it still shocked me. Sometimes it even causes like some fear or disorientation. You know, when that alarm comes on, you're like, wait a minute, where am I? Right. Um, Even the words wake up call, they've, they've, they've kind of become this cultural phrase to describe things in our life, right? Like to describe events that that maybe sober us a little bit or bring us back to reality or or remind us of what is actually true, what's actually going on in our lives. And what's interesting is that God, uh, well, he's actually the inventor of of the wake-up call. Uh, First and foremost, this is what we know about God when we think about a wake-up call, is that he wakes us up initially from the bed of death and darkness that we were born in. And he does it with this this illuminating light of Christ. That's how he wakes us up initially to his goodness and to his salvation. So the light of the gospel, that's a person's actual first wake-up call. Maybe some of you remember that. And when just the blinders were removed from your eyes, and maybe you had been in a church for a long time and somebody was just preaching at you and hammering you and like making this motion that I'm making right now at you. You know, or you had a friend or you had a family member who had been sharing uh, the message of the gospel. Um, and maybe you remember that as being your first wake-up call, right? And so that, that is a person's first wake-up call that they're actually happy to get, I would say, right? But then in his goodness, God does this interesting thing in that he provides a series of wake-up calls throughout our lives because, well, because we're prone to wander, We're prone to fall back into sleepiness and into self-reliance and into sinful patterns of our lives. And and really, in many ways, the events of the past nine weeks uh, have been a wake-up call for Substance Church, right? What's important for us um, is to not waste what we know to be God-ordained moments, God-ordained wake-up calls. But ask this question, what is God teaching us through this? And of course, for the purposes of the church, two of the most obvious and, but not insignificant things would probably be, one, the importance of unity, us being together about the things that God has brought us together under. And then two, uh, another important thing that I think God has been teaching us as we have received a wake-up call is that gossip and slander are like a cancer in the church. And we want to guard against those things as best as we can because... Here's what we know about God. Because God is holy, he does this amazing thing in that he prunes and purifies his church. And he does that so that we grow in greater fear, that we grow in greater reverence, that we grow in greater awe of him. And so what we're going to do this morning in Acts 5 is we're going to read one of the spookiest stories in all of scripture. And we're going to learn how God, one of the ways that God deals with sin. And it's going to be surprising in some ways because it's not the normative way that we think of how God deals with things. But it's also a picture of how 
all unrepentant sin will be dealt with in the end. And let me just say, nobody likes this story. I wasn't like just, just jacked out of my mind looking forward to preaching um, Acts chapter 5. All my friends that knew I was going to preach in Acts chapter 5, they've just been holding me up in prayer like all week for this one, right? Um, not the most enjoyable passage for us uh, to go through uh, at all. And the reason why is because it reminds us about a particular aspect of God's character that makes us massively uncomfortable, and that's his holiness. I remember when I was a kid, man, I had, um, I had this really unusual and peculiar love for roller coasters. I loved looking at them. I loved, I had books that had roller coasters in them. And this was obviously pre-internet, right? They didn't have internet back in the 40s, right? So this was, this was when you had to just, you know, watch TV, things like that. Remember that, you know? And you had to do things to sort of get a view on things. And man, I loved roller coasters. I had a fascination with them. And I, when I knew we were gonna go to Six Flags, which was basically our Cedar Point equivalent back in the day. Man, I would dream for weeks about how much fun I was gonna, gonna have on those coasters. The funny thing was that when we'd get to Six Flags and I was face to face with just these, you know, monstrous contraptions, um, man, I, I always forgot how big they were. Um, I forgot that they were in complete control once I was strapped in them. And I forgot that once they strapped me in, I couldn't get out, right? Um, what was happening is I finally saw them for what they were, which is steel death traps, you know, at the end of the day, right? <laughs> Sometimes we forget God's holiness until he's good enough to remind us of it in some ways that are shocking and terrifying for us. That's what we see here as we pick up in Acts chapter 5. And remember, up to this point, things are just going smashingly well with the early church, right? Jesus ascends to heaven. He lays out instructions for his disciples to wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So they wait, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. People are coming to know Jesus. The disciples are growing in their boldness and preaching the gospel. The church just is expanding by the thousands. When Peter and John even come before the religious leaders who are trying to shut them down, they just go, you know what? We're just going to keep doing what we know God has called us to do. And God continues to bless that. Everything is looking sweet, man. And then we come to Acts chapter 5, and this is what it says. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's funny how all of you got super quiet. The babies stopped crying. Like we're reading this thing and you're just going, wait a minute. I haven't read this for a while. I've never read this. I didn't see this one coming. The church didn't see this one coming either. But here's what we see happening. We see that people see our deeds. Ananias and Sapphira were people who were serving the church in a way that the church was able to see. And I want to begin with this premise because we're not given a lot of background here into the life of Ananias and Sapphira. All we know is that they did what appears to be a good deed. That's what we know. That's what we have. For most onlookers, right, they did what we saw Barnabas do last week, right, which was that they sold a piece of property and laid the money from the sale at the apostles' feet. Now, if that's all you know, and we might be able to assume that's all the people at this time in the church knew then, Ananias and Sapphira were making just this really selfless and just sacrificial contribution to the needs of the church, right? We can, we can imagine the church family just hearing about this, hearing about the sale of the property, feeling encouraged by their generosity, and maybe even, you know, becoming inspired to look at their own possessions and seeing what they might be able to give out of the abundance of what God has given them. So for all intents and purposes, Ananias and Sapphira are serving the church. Isn't this what we want to see? Isn't this a picture at face value of what we want to see, giving up our material possessions in order to share with those who have less? I mean, surely the part where it says Ananias kept back some of the proceeds for himself, it's understandable in some ways, isn't it? I mean, we don't tithe our entire paychecks, do we? I'm pretty sure nobody here does that, right? I mean, was God actually displeased with Ananias? Well, we find out that he was. And here's what we know. Christians could put on the greatest show on earth. We have opportunities to present an image. And not only that, but as Christians, we even have the language or we acquire the language to accompany it, right? How many celebrity pastors, how many people of influence in the church have to be exposed before we stop being surprised that people may see our deeds? right? Why are we surprised? Well, we're surprised because we thought they were one thing, but they turned out to be another thing, which is what's happening right here with Ananias and Sapphira. We have so many things as the church that men and women can see us do and applaud us for. Ananias and Sapphira knew that people saw their deeds. And again, this should sober us in some ways. It should sober us to know how easy it is to fool people, number one, and two, how easily we are fooled by people. But the more concerning matter is that we forget that God has never been fooled. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Job 28.24 reminds us, For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. 
Jesus made kind of a big deal about this in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 27, when he, was, when he was kind of railing at the Pharisees. And he said this, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, when are, but are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And then he says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When we look at this story, when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we're reminded that people may see our deeds. People may see your deeds. They may speak well of your generosity. They may applaud your sacrifices. They may like your social media posts until your head is so fat it practically explodes from all the praise and adoration. People may see our deeds. But God sees our hearts. God sees our hearts. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Proverbs 16.12 tells us, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Do you get the sense here of what's happening? Is that there's nothing you can do. There's no blinking of the eye. There's no movement of the hand. There's nothing you can do in some intricate part of the inside of you or the outside of you that God isn't aware of, that he doesn't see, that he's not testing. When the prophet Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel and God brought him to uh, the family of Jesse who had all these sons and Jesse's parading all of these really slick looking dudes before Samuel and Samuel keeps saying it must be this guy. He looks so good. All the pieces are in place. And then God brought him to David and says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So people may see our deeds, but God sees our hearts. And here's where it gets spooky in the story, because what we see in Ananias and Sapphira are two consciences that had been seared to the point where they thought nothing of deceiving the church. And in deceiving the church, they actually thought they were pulling a fast one on God. And then what happened as the result is sobering because death has a tendency to sober us really quickly. And so as we reflect on this, I think it's important to note how strongly Peter reacts. Did you catch that? Did you catch how decisive Peter was? This is the same Peter, by the way. This is Peter who denied Jesus three times. Peter right? I mean, you can almost hear someone saying, slow your roll, Pete. It's not like they didn't give anything to the church. And hey, I don't remember you ever being perfect. Well, Peter kind of covers this for us in verse four, because he points out to Ananias that he wasn't even obligated to sell his property. And even after he sold it, he could have done as he pleased with it. He had freedom. He could have even kept part of the money for himself. That wasn't the issue at hand. But it's very much like us in a lot of ways as we read this to make it all about the property. 
or to make it all about the amount of money that Ananias gave or didn't give to the church, when in reality, it was that he deceived the church into thinking he gave something he never gave in order to appear to be someone he wasn't. It was that he cared about his reputation and his appearance more than he cared about the reputation of Christ and the purity of Christ's bride, the church. It was that in the end, he hadn't really lied to the church as much as he had more importantly lied to God. And that's something we have a word for. It's called hypocrisy. And at first glance, I know that you're like me in this and that you say, well, shoot, I've done that a few times. Keep your chin up, Ananias. It's okay. But then he falls down dead. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in and she lies, then dies. And this is where the conflict begins inside of us, right? Because these are some of the questions and the thoughts that start ruminating and start stirring inside of us, right? We think, does this seem out of character for God? We ask that question. We know that God sees our hearts, but we also know from scripture that, well, he's a loving and a forgiving God and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Let me read that over and over again in scripture. Was this sin really big enough to deserve death? I mean, if God is so loving, how can he do something this unbelievably sharp and what we would say is unloving? We might even go so far as to think and say, who does God think he is here? And by the way, if these are the thoughts that surface when you read this story, you're not alone. You're not alone in asking, how could God do what he did to Ananias and Sapphira? But here's what I want to propose to you, is that it's this line of thinking that begins to illuminate what we think about God, and more specifically about God's holiness and the nature of our sin and how we think of our sin, and the fact that we like to categorize our sin into big sins, little sins, respectable sins, revolting sins. And by the way, there are different consequences for all those different kinds of sins. But sin as a whole is blanketed under the holiness of God. Listen to what J.D. Greer says, because I think it's helpful for us. This is what he says. God doesn't do this with everyone who lies to the Holy Spirit today. But that should not cover up the fact that this death is a picture of how God feels about it. It's a glimpse of future judgment for all who share in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. Sin is a deadly matter to God, he says. If we're honest, many of us would find God's actions offensive but that merely reveals our ignorance of sin and God's holiness. And he goes on to say, we shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? Instead, we should wonder, why do we remain alive? Yes, God is patient with us and slow to anger. But as R.C. Sproul says, we forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not to become bolder in our sin. Man, those are true but sobering and I hope helpful in words of, of clarity from, from J.D. Because we get our minds blown 
And we get our hearts broken when God does something that in our reasoning, he should never do. Could it be that we who are operating under the curse of sin-corrupted brains are thinking wrongly about God? I mean, I don't know. Just throwing that one out there as a possibility, right? Isn't it interesting that our brains always default to God being the one who's wrong? The nature of sin is that it blame shifts. That's the nature of sin. It blame shifts. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? Remember how, man, they just sinned before the Lord and they just raised their hand and they said it was me. Man, I'm going to own everything I did. Yeah, you don't remember that because that's not the story. The story is that Adam said it was the woman you gave me. I'm not unpacking that right now, guys. And Eve said it was the serpent. Nobody wanted to take blame. Everybody wanted to minimize their sin. Do you realize that the downfall of mankind was because someone took a crunch out of an apple? There was no murder. There wasn't somebody that was getting hurt. Well, it must be okay as long as no one's getting hurt, right? I mean, there's nothing in the moment that would make you think that what they did was anything deserving of everything falling into decay and heading towards death and eventually dying. Just keeping it cheery today. Isn't that so interesting? But we blame shift. The nature of sin is that it blame shifts. But notice that there's nothing of that sort going on here. Isn't that interesting? God acts decisively and there's no debate with God here recorded for us. Those questions aren't surfaced in the text, but they surface in our mind, which is why it's a good thing not to ignore them, but to contemplate them and to reflect on them and ask yourself, why do I find issue with God when he acts in ways that I don't believe he should act? Who's the one we hold to account? Our brain? Our way of thinking? Or do we say, no, God, you need to answer for yourself. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and this was a church that was just really jacked up and they were struggling with sexual immorality. And he said in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he said, listen, guys, do you know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's not giving them a class on bread making, right? He said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See what he brings it back to? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what Paul is trying to point out to the Corinthian church is that, hey, if we allow sin to manifest itself without calling it out, without calling for repentance, man, this stuff spreads. One sin from Adam and Eve, and here we are preaching about sin. Do you realize there would have been no messages about sin if they wouldn't have taken the bite of that apple and disobeyed God? Here we are because someone took a bite, because someone did something that we would consider so minor and not worthy of what we've been propelled into ever since. But it's understanding how wide sin spreads and this is why God acted the way he did. So at times, God, he prunes. At times, God purifies his church because people may see our deeds, but God sees our heart. 
So we actually get a response from the church here, which begs the question, how should the church respond to this? Well, it says in both instances, when Ananias went down, when Sapphira went down, they responded in what? In great fear, it said, which by the way, was the right response. That was the right response to respond to God in fear and reverence and awe. This is what Al Mohler says about great fear. He says, because of the grace of God found in Christ, our relationship with God is no longer one of a guilty offender before the judge. So he's trying to make us understand what we mean when we say the church uh, responded in great fear. He says, nor is God some cruel tyrant who is out to get us. God is a father, a loving father who pursues the good of his children. But that doesn't mean we should not also fear God. We should. We should stand in awe and wonder at his holiness. We should fear his power and his might. We should fear him as our creator who holds our very breath in his hand. This fear gives birth not to timidity and uncertainty in our relationship with God, but to reverence and wonder. So follow me here. If God doesn't move his church toward greater fear and awe of himself, if he doesn't prune us like a gardener, removing weeds and dead branches. What does this tell us about God? Well, I think one of the things it would tell us is that God must think so little of his church, so little of his holiness, so little of his glory. It would make us wonder why God sent his son to be slaughtered for our sin if he thought so little of it. Every time we think, every time you think and I think, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, every time we think things like, why, God? Or how could you, God? Or who do you think you are, God? Or how dare you, God? I, I'm like getting afraid even like saying those lines, right? The cross comes into view for us. God has his son slaughtered. Because our sin, our big sins, our little sins, our respectable sins, our revolting sins. And you know when I say respectable, I don't mean respectable sin. Just for clarification. But what it means is those cannot be tolerated forever by a holy God. If we want a picture of injustice, if we want a picture of fairness and unfairness, then we need to look no further than Jesus Christ being condemned for our sins as a perfectly innocent man, untainted by any sin at all. So Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, this should be spooky. This should be scary. This should sober us rightly because it gives us a gruesome picture of what God has, listen, every right to do and yet not betray his character at all. In fact, God would be less than God if he let sin go unpunished forever. And let me just propose this. You don't want that God. And by the way, that is not God. So are these verses verses that serve as a kind of wake-up call in your life? Are you someone who is deceiving God by deceiving all of us? Here? Are you not who you appear to be? What's the thing that you keep hidden that needs to be given over to God and repented of? What could it be as you're hearing this, as you're reading this? And by the way, giving up that thing to God is not what saves you, 
but it is a saved person that will respond with great fear and great repentance because they see the terror of God's great holiness. This is the place Ananias and Sapphira never got to. I don't know why they never got to it. We're not given that. But we can. It's the place that all of us can get to today. So how? How can we be a church that is growing in greater fear and reverence and awe? Well, here's the first thing I think we see is that we can do it by examination. By examination, by examining your heart, by examining my heart to see if your view of sin is different than God's view of sin. To see if your view of sin has become warped and influenced by how the world might view sin. A writer named Melissa Kruger, she wrote this. She said, if good tolerated evil, it would cease to be good. Refusal to tolerate sin then is an essential part of loving others well. And she says, it might be tolerant for a mother to let her children play in a busy street or run with scissors, but it's not loving in the least. Today's passage reminds us that it's impossible to lie to God. And then what happens to a person's heart when it believes it can or doesn't care if it does. So we need to have self-examination when we read passages like this. Lamentations 340 reminds us, says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Take a deep breath right now. We're still breathing. We have a moment to test and examine our ways. We have a moment this morning to return to the Lord. Because Hebrews 10.31 warns us that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we're examining ourselves because we take God's holiness seriously. The second thing, how do we grow in fear and awe? We do it by intimacy, by becoming more intimately acquainted with who God, listen, actually is rather than who we actually want God to be. Because of our sin, we are all thinking wrongly of God in various bits and pieces and ways. Every time we sin, it's thinking wrongly of God. So we're all thinking wrongly of God. How do we think rightly about God? By becoming more intimately equated with him and his word. Ron, are you telling me once again that I need to be getting into God's word? I mean, if I ever have a week that I don't say that to you, you got to look for a new guy. Tim Keller says this. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So have you made a God fashioned in your own image rather than the one that is presented to us in all glory, in all grace, in all holiness in the Bible? Because that's the God who we're dealing with in actuality, not the God of our preference. So we grow in reverence and awe by examining ourselves something that it doesn't look like Ananias and Sapphira did, and by intimacy, by becoming more intimately acquainted with who God is. And finally, I think by practice, by practice, by being like Barnabas. 
who was called a son of encouragement. Let's go back to chapter four. Look what it says about Barnabas. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was the opposite of Ananias and Sapphira. He was generous. He was sacrificial. He was honest before the church. He was honest before the Lord and God used him greatly. In fact, as we continue to go further into the book of Acts, we're going to see how he was used alongside Paul to build up and encourage the early church. Here's the model for us. Barnabas is a model of someone who greatly feared God and he had a life of faithfulness to show for his fear. So what comes out of all this fear and awe and reverence? But faithfulness. Barnabas didn't live in fear of God's punishment because Christ had removed that fear on the cross. And this is how we want to end by understanding who God is as someone who is loving, someone who is merciful, someone who is patient, but also somebody who is just and also somebody who is holy. How are we to receive and understand and grow in our love for someone who is all of those things and does things in ways as we read scripture and as we see fleshed out in our lives that sometimes we don't understand? What are we to do with some of these things? And even the unanswered questions that face us here as we read Ananias and Sapphira. I'll tell you what we want to do is we want to go back to the character of God. We want to go back and remind ourselves of who God is, who we are not, and why it's our understanding that needs to be shifted, not God's. Here's what R.C. Sproul says to help us. He says, we should think of the fear of God like a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is in that child's world the source of security and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the source of security and love. And it's because of your great holiness that that actually is true about you. And so God, as we read passages like this that disturb us, that leave us feeling unsettled, that convict us, I pray that they wouldn't just leave our memory so quickly, but that we would examine ourselves today Lord, that we would pursue greater intimacy with you. That we would become a son or a daughter of encouragement like Barnabas was. Lord, by practicing a faith that is rooted in reverence and awe of you. God, would you, would you stir in us these things as a church, God, these hidden sins these things that actually affect 
the person to the right and left of us more than we could possibly imagine. God, would you draw us to repentance today? Would you draw us to being honest about these things in our lives that we are keeping hidden, that we are using as a way for us to increase our reputation and to continue cultivating a certain perception that we want others to see, ignoring the fact that you, well, you see everything. So God, wherever we may find ourselves today in that, God, I pray that the same sobriety and fear that swept over the early church would sweep over us today because you knew from before the foundations of the world that this passage was going to be preached at this particular time in our history and it could be that we need a wake-up call and it could be that we have received a wake-up call and it could be that you are trying to get us back down on our knees in fear and awe and reverence of you because a church with that kind of posture is a church that you are pleased with not perfection but a church with a posture of repentance and fear and reverence that leads to faithfulness. And God, thank you that you give us grace. Thank you that even when we read about Ananias and Sapphira, we see grace because you are one who prunes and you purify because you're a good father. Help us to see that. Help us to shift our thinking if it needs shifted. And Lord, right now, help us to come before the table acknowledging that in Christ, the big sins, the little sins, the respectable sins, the revolting sins were all laid on him. And it's that nourishment that we need. It's that righteousness that we need to stand before you and your holiness. Thank you that there is a way now because of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.